DW Living Planet with Sam Baker. Welcome to Living Planet. Good to have you with us. On the show today, the fight over an oil pipeline in Uganda. We ask what fossil fuels have to do with our beauty routine, and if you've ever wondered about the environmental and economic trade-offs of getting an electric vehicle, we've got some answers for you there too. Stay tuned. A new oil pipeline set to cross Uganda and end at the Tanzanian coast is being touted by supporters as something that will bring jobs and prosperity. But environmentalists and human rights activists are not convinced, and caution that its environmental and human costs will outweigh its benefits. Julius Mugambwa and Tabea Magentala bring us this report, presented by Isaac Mugabe. Birds are chirping in the Magzon Falls National Park in northwestern Uganda. This is a sanctuary for wildlife. A group of elephants is making their way across the tall, lush green grass. Half a dozen giraffes watch on from their position underneath the acacia trees where they are seeking shade from the blazing sun. Hippos thrash about in a nearby waterhole. This is just one of 35 reserves, sanctuaries and parks managed by the Uganda Wildlife Authority which was established in 1996 and tasked with protecting the country's flora and fauna. The parks attract a lot of foreign visitors. After farming and forestry, tourism is one of Uganda's biggest sources of revenue. But a number of these biodiversity hotspots are under threat from plans to extract the 1.7 billion barrels of oil that have been discovered under the ground here. Set to open in 2025, the East African Crude Oil Pipeline, or the IACOP for short, will begin in Hoima, a city in the country's west, located close to Lake Albert. It will run nearly 1,500 kilometers, and it will transport oil from the Tilenga and Kingfisher fields, which are to the north and south of Lake Albert, and then continue running south through rainforests and alongside towns and villages before passing just west of Lake Victoria, a freshwater reservoir for millions of people located in the country's south that spills over into neighboring Tanzania. The pipeline will then cross northern Tanzania before reaching Tanga on the Indian Ocean coast. From there, the crude oil will be loaded onto tankers. The two representing the government of Uganda is the Honorable Minister of Energy, the government of Uganda. In early 2022, Uganda's Energy Minister, Ruth Nankabira, sat down with the CEO of French multinational Total Energies in Kampala to sign the Lake Albert Development Project into operation. The second biggest investor on board is the China National Offshore Oil Corporation, or CENOC. The two companies have committed 10 billion US dollars to extract and transport the oil. That's a welcome development for Uganda's State Minister of Finance for Investment, Evelyn Anite. This is an exciting news for our country. It's uh, long-awaited news. We should actually throw a party. The Ghanaian state has a 15% stake in the pipeline, and there is widespread optimism about the oil produced in the country, bringing thousands of new jobs as well as additional revenue. But there is still widespread criticism of the project too. 
Among the critics is Dickens Kamujisha, an attorney and the head of the Africa Institute for Energy Governance. He's been skeptical from the outset. He says, if you go to the communities that are losing their homes to the pipeline, you will discover they aren't being reimbursed for their losses, families are struggling, their children can't go to school. If you go to all the other countries that are already producing oil in Africa, you discover that oil does not create jobs. Don't say that those people are finally going to get jobs. In the village of Mkwendo, not far from the Tilenga oil fields, children are playing gleefully with one another. Like their parents, these children are about to become so-called PAPs, project-affected persons. Among the older generation is Charles Otema, who used to own some land in this area. I receive money from Total. Even they promised to give me a house. The corporate investors have faced accusations of giving locals like Otema insufficient, if any, compensation. But Omar Diallo, spokesperson for the Total Energies, Earcorp project says in the Zoom interview that the company is still planning on compensating them. If someone is not paid, the normal acquisition process is not concluded. That is to say people do remain on their land until when they are paid. And this is a really important, uh, this is really important for us. And this is somewhere the guarantee that they are able to pursue their, their activities, could be farming activities, and they are able to maintain their standard of living. Total Energy's activities in Uganda are being monitored by Malte Gale, a member of the EU Parliament. And now that Uganda has pledged to implement measures to limit global warming, the Green Party politician says Uganda is in a good position to turn its back on fossil fuels like crude oil. Renewables are just the far better option for Ugandan people. And I mean, like, they do have all the minerals they need to create a really carbon-free future. They could be, uh, play a very, very important role in the green transition. The WWF has raised concerns that the pipeline project would disrupt over 2,000 square kilometers of protected habitat that is home to incredible biodiversity an enormous number of animals and plants that work together to keep this important ecosystem alive. <laughs> the government is said not to have done due diligence and to have done an environmental impact assessment, adequate environmental impact assessment, okay, on the effect of the pipeline, on the areas where the pipeline is going to go through, the water bodies, the land and air. Those are legitimate issues that the AU is raising. That's opposition politician Medad Lubega Segona. His immediate worry is the grave environmental impact from the pipeline's proximity to Lake Victoria. Lake Victoria is a lake that feeds millions, over 20 million of people in Kenya, in Tanzania, in Uganda, and it is a source of river Nile that serves how many countries. So, we don't think that there is a reason why you should risk such a natural resource with the project they are planning. These concerns are not unfounded, given previous incidents elsewhere. In 2008, several thousand liters of oil spilled out of a pipeline in Nigeria, leaving the soil contaminated by chromium, lead and mercury, 
with lasting consequences as Mike Z. Kote experienced firsthand when he lived in the Niger Delta region. Our lives in Bodo depended largely on the sea and seafoods. Today, almost all of those seafoods have gone. We can't find them again because of the oil spill. And this has led to a, a level of poverty I, I will yet find, not find the word to describe. Over in France, Total Energies is eager to rule out disasters of that nature with the new pipeline project. Omar Diallo, spokesperson for the Total Energies IACO project, has the following to say. There will be a monitoring process via a fiber optic all along the pipeline. This is first. And in addition of this monitoring, we'll have what we call some mainline block valve. That is to say some tools that we can use in case of incident. And thanks to this, we will be able to block, to stop the flow of the product at uh, any place of this uh, pipeline. That does not, however, even begin to address the serious environmental and human health consequences that arise from the burning of fossil fuels such as oil. In Brussels, Malte Gale continues to press for answers and accountability together with like-minded colleagues and was part of a team that initiated an EU resolution on the matter. This should also be a clear sign uh, to every other company in Europe uh, that is active outside of Europe that uh, we will watch them very uh, clearly and we will uh, not turn our backs uh, to them if they uh, are involved in human rights violations. Supporters of the pipeline in Uganda recently vented their anger at the resolution outside the EU delegation's offices in Kampala. They waved signs reading, Stop neocolonialism and imperialism on Uganda's oil project, and Uganda is an independent country. He is one of them explaining their frustration to a Ugandan TV crew. We are here to tell the European Union to stop, to stop meddling on our oil. Our oil is our hope. Yes. Our oil is our future. Yes. And our yes. hope of source of, an, of, of employment. Yes. Uganda's president, Yoweri Museveni, has accused the EU of arrogance. When you go to this parliament, these are just young girls, member of parliament. You, you are lecturing me what to do in Uganda. Ugandan citizens criticizing the pipeline face being arrested as seen in a growing number of cases posted online. The big question is, what price will current and future generations pay for destroying the homes of people and creatures in one of the most biodiverse ecosystems on the planet? In the past week, the construction license for the East African crude oil pipeline was approved in Uganda. And in reaction, environmental activists in Paris sprayed fire extinguishers at the office building of French bank BNP Paribas, which is loaning money for the project. For more environment stories like this one from across Africa, do check out our TV show, Eco Africa. You can find it online at DW.com. Now, sometimes it seems that fossil fuels have made their way into every aspect of our lives, transporting us to work, heating our homes, packaging our groceries in plastic, 
But take a peek into your bathroom cabinet and you will likely find even more products that utilize substances from crude oil. Yes, beauty products from shampoo to makeup to toothpaste even often contain petrochemicals. As their name would suggest, these are chemicals produced from petroleum or natural gas. But do these compounds have any relation to our current climate crisis? And if so, what substitutes are out there? Joining me now to answer these questions is my DW colleague Aditi Rajagopal on the line from Berlin. Aditi recently explored this world of petrochemicals that we put on our face, bodies, and in our hair. Hi, Aditi. Welcome to Living Planet. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So over this past weekend, I had a look through my own cabinets and shower, and I counted, I'm a little embarrassed to say, over 22 products that I use on a regular basis. I don't really think of myself as a super high-maintenance person. I don't wear a lot of makeup normally, but there's still a lot of stuff that I feel like I need to feel put together. I had the same realization when I started looking into it because I think of myself as somebody who is really all about being natural, but actually it really adds up quickly when you're talking about toothpaste and mouthwash and shower gel and these things that are just so common. But yeah, pretty much all of them, chances are they contain petrochemicals or petrochemical derivatives. So how did petrochemicals get into so many of these products? I mean, why do we use them and what are their benefits? I guess the one that I knew ahead of time was petroleum jelly. It's in the name, right? Yes. But I didn't realize it was in so many other things. So what sorts of things are they doing for us? So they can be talking specifically about cosmetics or beauty products. They can be amazing emulsifiers, which are substances that hold things like oil and water together, or they can be amazing moisturizers. Or There are compounds called VOCs, volatile organic compounds, which really are amazing at holding onto fragrances, and so they're used in perfumes. One story that I also quite enjoyed and that I uncovered in my research is the guy who discovered petroleum jelly that we now call Vaseline, like found it when he was at a drilling site and he like kind of swiped it off the a barrel of oil or something like this. He applied it on a wound he had and it worked its magic. And he was like, oh my God, I found this miracle substance. And he apparently even ate a spoonful or two of it until the day he died at over a, or almost at 100 years of age. Oh. So, <laughs> so many years of research have gone into finding out what the byproducts of the petroleum industry can do for us. Do petrochemicals contribute to climate change? I mean, it's not like we're burning them in our cars or anything the way we are with oil or or gas to heat our homes. Actually, a group of scientists and researchers calculated that petrochemicals in their life cycle emissions create double the carbon impact of conventional fossil fuels. At the moment, petrochemicals, of course, come from only a small part of the barrel of oil. And overall, the bigger impacts come from burning the oil. But petrochemicals themselves, one for one, actually are more climate unfriendly than conventional fossil fuels. As you say, it's it's only a portion of the barrel of oil, if you will. But kind of what's the outlook for this? As renewables replace the need for drilling oil, and because petrochemicals will continue to be profitable, more and more oil companies do say in their outlooks that they are hoping for growth in the petrochemical sector. And it's one of the only, I think it, there's petrochemicals and aviation are the two sectors that are projected for growth while everything else seems to decline. So of course, there is going to be more focus on getting petrochemicals into more industries. And that could also 
end up subsidizing the cost of oil itself. So how do we reduce our use of these petrochemicals and the products we use since they are so pervasive? Should we just look for natural or organic products in the store? It's so hard as a consumer to avoid these things because they're literally everywhere. The big things to avoid are mineral oil, paraffin wax, anything with the word butyl in it. PEGs, DEA and MEA are the big ones. And even the words natural and organic don't really mean that much. There are country-specific definitions, but there's also like a lot of room for being wishy-washy within those. But having said that, a natural product or an organic product is not necessarily better for the environment. For example, I calculated that for one gram of rose oil essence would require 10,000 grams of rose petals, which means you have to then factor in the amount of land that you need to use to grow these things, the water, the pesticides. Mm. So are there any other solutions around, around how pervasive these petrochemicals are in the beauty industry? There's something that I found is like one nice bright spot. It's something called green chemistry. And it's where brands are sourcing the same chemicals, but not from a petrochemical source, but instead from a renewable resource like um, agricultural waste or sugarcane residue or, or even kitchen waste. There are smaller and bigger brands actually that are now trying to put more money into figuring out how their sources can be renewable. And that's something that I think is really promising. For much more on how your beauty routine may be affecting the environment, do check out Aditi's video, Why You're Putting Fossil Fuels on Your Face. You can find it on DW's YouTube channel, Planet A. This is Living Planet. I'm Sam Baker. Well, we're nearing the end of January now. How are you doing with your New Year's resolutions? One change I've been thinking about making this year is to both shorten my commute to work and do so by getting an electric vehicle. I'm still in the fact-finding stage, though, but luckily for me, our reporter Anupama Chandra Sekaran has already done a lot of the research for me. She lives in one of the most polluted countries in the world, India. Not only do fossil fuels contribute to climate change, of course— the South Asian nation is also suffocating from the dirty air that traditional combustion engines create. In light of all of this, India is working to speed up the country's adoption of electric vehicles, with billions of dollars of incentives to facilitate the transition. In an effort to stop contributing to all of this pollution, Anupama bought an electric vehicle herself a few months ago. But did her purchase of a battery-operated car truly shrink her carbon footprint? She mulls over her decision while driving around Chennai, India, looking for answers. I'm getting into my new car. It's an electric vehicle or an EV, a battery-operated car that doesn't require any gasoline. It's pretty low on maintenance because it has fewer moving parts than a regular car. That also makes it strikingly quiet. There's no rumble, no vroom. Unlike... This gas-guzzling internal combustion engine that spews fumes. Our new ride has zero tailpipe emissions, but I still wonder, have I really stopped defiling the atmosphere? 
India has some of the grimiest air in the world. Readings of tiny hazardous particles in the air are 12 times the World Health Organization's recommendation. Air quality is, is a serious issue. I mean, it is one of the, in fact, it might even be the major uh, killer now in, in India, for example. This is Ashish Fernandez. He runs Climate Risk Horizons, an organization that advises businesses on the climate crisis. And he's got a point. Particulate matter in the air can seep into our lungs and from there, our bloodstream. This leads to not just respiratory problems, but also heart ailments. The Indian government wants to reduce the amount of particulate matter in the air. It's eyeing a 20 to 30% reduction in the next two years. One idea to ensure this happens has been to shrink taxes for EV buyers in India, people like me. This is the world's fourth largest car market after all. And there's a lot of room to grow. Electric models form a minuscule 1% of yearly car sales. The Indian government is aiming to get that number to 80% of new cars by 2030. So this chatter from the government has actually created a lot of awareness. Vivek Srivatsa heads the marketing team for Tata Passenger Electric Mobility Limited. It's not really a question of if the country will change to EVs, but it is about when. But the swap to an EV isn't really the panacea many hope for. For instance, there's also a petrol version of the electric vehicle I drive. And if I compare them at the showroom, my electric car starts off being more polluting because of the mining involved in getting battery components. Tata's Vivek Srivatsa admits that EVs aren't the greener choice right away. When you buy a new car and up to the point when we call it the zero kilometer, uh, at that point of time, an EV has emitted more carbon than what ICE vehicle has done. ICE is an internal combustion engine, those that run on gasoline. Now, a mid-sized electric sedan generates more than 8 tonnes of carbon dioxide before it reaches the customer. That's 50% more than a similar gasoline-fed vehicle, according to a 2021 study. Why? Well, because of the impact of mining of lithium and cobalt for electric batteries. This results in not just biodiversity loss, but also soil degradation in mine territories. It also often leads to water pollution and higher radioactivity levels in regions like southern Congo, which are rich in cobalt and uranium. But as you continue to drive an electric vehicle, the air does get clear in comparison to its petrol and diesel-fed counterparts. And after about two to three years of running, whatever the source of power, an EV is less polluting over its life cycle. But definitely, you know, the future of energy production as well is has to be greenified, as we call it. Greenified. That requires generating electricity, the fuel for an electric vehicle, through naturally replenishing resources like wind and sunlight. So far since our purchase, our EV has run nearly 2,000 kilometres. It can run about 300 kilometres in one go when fully charged. Today, it's down to 20%. Time to charge it. So I'm connecting the charging plug to a socket on my driveway. The other end goes into the car's charge port. The question now is, what is the source of this power that I'm using? Well, most probably coal. 
India currently gets only 25% of its power from solar panels and windmills. A big chunk of electricity is still generated from coal-fed power plants. So while I'm not relying on gasoline, I may still be driving up demand for another polluter. When you burn coal to generate electricity, pollutants such as mercury, lead and various other heavy metals are released into the atmosphere. Environmental consultant Ashish Fernandez again. The poor quality of the coal is part of it. The fact that we still don't have pollution control equipment on 90% of the coal plants in India. As I researched, I did find one ray of hope. The South Indian state of Tamil Nadu, where I live, gets 45% of its power from renewable energy. For other Indian states, the transformation could be on its way. The Indian government aims to satisfy 50% of its energy needs through renewable resources by the end of this decade. That's within seven years. Now, let's assume my electric vehicle continues to be charged from an entirely coal-fired grid. In that case, it will still generate 10% less carbon dioxide a year than a gasoline car over its lifetime. This is because it doesn't emit any fumes while running. And it's likely to just get better and better. Wind and sunlight will continue to grow as sources of electricity in India. Ashish Arora is seeing this firsthand. Since October, this businessman has been on a self-sponsored 25,000-kilometer trip in his electric vehicle across India and its Himalayan neighbours, Nepal and Bhutan. When I spoke to him, he was parked in the northeast Indian state of Nagaland. Now, only today, I went to this uh, filling station in Dimapur. This particular filling station, it was completely running on, you know, solar. This guy had 10 kilowatt of load of solar. And I asked him, like, why not more chargers? He says, That translates as, when the cars increase, I'll put in more chargers. Ashish has chalked his travel route based on the availability of charging stations. And he has to plan meticulously because India has just 930 public charging stations. China, on the other hand, has 2.2 million. So, which comes first, the electric vehicle or the electric vehicle charging station? Spikes in gasoline coupled with a drop in cost of electric cars is stoking demand. And with each mile, the savings add up. You know, obviously, it's a fraction of a cost. Anything around 1 to 1.5 rupees per kilometer is how much a customer spends on driving an EV. Around 8 to 10 rupees for a diesel or a gasoline vehicle. That's a cost of 2 cents a mile for an electric vehicle versus 16 cents a mile for a petrol or diesel car, according to Tata's Vivek Srivatsa. Indians being Indians... Uh, we love <clears throat> love it when something is economical, even though the initial cost might be pretty high. Uh, running costs uh, going down is a major incentive for customers. Moreover, the Indian government is offering several tax breaks to buyers of electric vehicles to boost their adoption. Still, the country's plans to invest 10 billion US dollars in 50,000 electric or battery-operated public transport buses will hold far more weight in the fight against emissions, says climate risk consultant Ashish Fernandez. Everyone having an EV is not a solution to anything. 
right? Because road infrastructure, roads cannot take it, doesn't help you if everyone has the EV. So public transport, electrifying public transport, I think nearly needs to be the critical thing that India does in all its cities. Electrifying public transport will definitely quiet our roads. Other benefits include higher occupancy and 30 times more savings per mile than electric cars. And most importantly for the planet, it will speed up cuts in a city's carbon footprint. Right, so was my purchase a sensible one? My EV emits at least 30 grams less carbon dioxide per kilometre than its petrol version. I source power from a grid that gets 45% of its electricity from sunlight and wind, but is still mostly coal-dependent. So what choice do I have in the future? Well, hopping onto an electrified public bus or subway train, powered by an increasingly green grid, could be the answer. Hmm. Except on days I have to ferry my three-feet-tall hound to the wet. He too would disapprove of it. For completely different reasons, of course. For DW, I'm Anupama Chandrasekharan in Chennai, India. Now, one more bit of news before I leave you today, and I think Anupama's dog Blitz will especially like this one. According to a recent study conducted by scientists from the UK-based University of Lincoln, along with the company Car Gurus, dogs are calmer in electric vehicles, and they also get less car sick. Apparently, the smoother ride, along with less road noise and vibration, reduced the canine's heart rates by up to 30% compared to a ride in a diesel car. Thanks this week to Nicodemos Brown and Vipka Tegtmaya in the studio. I'm Sam Baker. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the globe.